All right, folks, it is mid-October. It's almost Halloween, but more importantly, it's almost time for the CMMC rule to be published. So as we all know, longtime listeners of the podcast, longtime consumers of Summit 7 content, uh, we have been tracking CMMC rulemaking developments for some time now. And the big signal a couple months ago was when the CMMC rule was officially sent over to OIRA, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, a group of people who work inside the Office of Management and Budget. When the CMMC rule was sent over to OIRA for regulatory review, that was the signal that two years of the rulemaking development process was at an end, essentially, and that they, the DOD had turned in their paper to OMB for dotting I's, crossing T's, last minute checks, reviews, and analysis prior to it being published in the Federal Register for everybody to see and comment and enjoy and take in. <laughs> so, so, so when they released it, right, we did a bunch of analysis. We went back and looked at every rule that DOD has sent to uh, OIRA since 2009. And on average, it takes about 66 business days for a submitted rule to go through the review process and then subsequently be published. That's the average. The executive order that governs this process says OIRA has 90 days. We did the math. It's 66 business days, which is pretty close, pretty close. Long story short, that should be sometime around October 26th, sometime around late October, give or take, probably, probably give, right? That probably will be, you know, a little, a little past that. But we're talking a matter of, of weeks here at the time of this podcast recording. And, uh, and so as a result, we just kind of wanted to go over seven things that people should know before the rule comes out. So as somebody that famously, you, Jacob, passed out hard copies or uh, Kinko's copies of 853 last year to all the trick-or-treaters. That's right. We're, doing, we're running it back this year. If you guys are in the greater Southern California area and you end up trick-or-treating in my neighborhood, you'll know it's my house because we're handing out hard copies of 853. Do you children. think that the turnaround period for the local Kinko's uh, outlet is going to be uh, conducive for you to do, I don't know, hard count, hardbound copies of proposed rules, maybe, you know, to educate Jason, the kids and bring them up? Listen, buddy, it was just your birthday. Happy birthday, by the way. And I know you, you just turned 40, but it hasn't been called Kinko's since like 2001. It, am right? I showing my age here? FedEx bought Kinko's like 20 years ago, man. What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> it's FedEx <Yeah>. Kinko. <laughs> yes, listen, it is a uh, it is a big operation to get hard copies of missed publications out to all of the trick or treaters, but it is uh, a sacrifice I am willing to make and a logistical uh, challenge that I am willing to navigate for uh, the sake of moving the discipline of GRC further forward. You gotta you gotta get them started early. You know what I mean? You gotta work on your forehand. You got to work on your golf swing. You got to work on your knowledge of NIST standards at an early age. Really get it going because we all know it's very difficult to get people to read it once they're in adulthood. Anyways, we're waiting on the CMMC rule to get published. And uh, like we said, there's probably seven, oddly enough, there's seven things that we think that people, uh, people should know. So I guess let's jump right into it. Okay, so one of the things that we've talked about in depth in the past uh, is the difference between a proposed rule and an interim final rule. Uh, the first thing that people should know, based off everything we've heard, the rumor mill, opinions, hot takes, social media, 
uh, horoscopes, I, everything. Everybody seems to converge on the fact that the CMMC rule will be published as a proposed rule and not as an interim final rule. What that means is essentially when it becomes effective and starts rolling out into contracts. Um, proposed rules are the normal way that rulemaking happens. The uh, rule from whatever agency goes to OIRA, goes through its regulatory review process, gets published in the Federal Register. There's a comment period, and then the agency has to adjudicate and respond to those comments in what is known as a final rule. And that final rule has the text of whatever the regulation is, and that is what becomes effective. An interim final rule is essentially uh, a waiver for that process. And that says that, um, you know, the rule is going to become effective prior to the agency finishing their responses in a final rule. It's an interim final rule, like the interim heavyweight champ of the world, right? So everybody thinks it's going to be a proposed rule rather than a final rule. We'll link to some episodes and some content that we've done in the past that sort of outline the case for and against both of those, the advantages and disadvantages of whichever one we're going to get. Uh, but the, the the sort of long and short of it is that uh, a proposed rule, according to DOD historical averages for rules that they've published in the past that have been proposed, generally takes about a little over a year for them to adjudicate the comments that they receive on the rule. So assuming that we're going to get the published CMMC rule here in Q4 of 2023, uh, the math works out. We would expect to see the final version of the rule to come out in Q1 of 2025. And what I mean by the final version is that's the version that would start to roll out into contracts. So we'll get the published rule. Everybody gets to do their comments. They adjudicate the comments. They publish the final rule. And then we're off to the races. And like we talked about in the past, you know, this is what gets people into what we are kind of calling the implementation trap. Right. People are waiting for the CMMC rule to come out to start their implementation, not really understanding that they are being assessed against a set of requirements that are already required to be implemented via DFAR 7012. And those implementation timelines generally extend longer than the amount of time it takes DOD to adjudicate comments. So if it takes most companies 12 to 18 months to be assessment ready and it takes DOD about 12 months to adjudicate comments, then you're about six months behind if the rule comes out at the end of this month. And then just extrapolate that further and further, the worse it gets. We've talked about this in the past. So during the comment period, right, Jacob, how, how long is that comment period? Yeah, well, so that gets into the, the second thing to know, right? So uh, whether it's interim final or whether it's proposed, right? Part of the democratic process of rulemaking is the public gets to comment on the rules and the standard fare for rulemaking is a 60-day comment period. So there will be a comment period. That comment period will most likely be 60 days. Uh, that's sort of the default uh, amount of time that they've given in the past for rulemaking across all rules, not just DOD rules. Sometimes that's been extended in the past, not just for DOD rules, just in general. But the rule of thumb is 60 days for public comments. And what are the appropriate type of comments for this, right? Because we always talk about sometimes comments are submitted and they're not within the purview of the people that are that they're being submitted to. Yeah. So this comment period is strictly for comments on the rule itself. And th this rule is for the the validation program, like how is yeah, it that's going right. to operate, right? Yeah. Something else that we've talked about in the past, right, is, um, you know, we, we talked about this in depth at CS2 Live, uh, you know, for, or Summit Up Live at CS2 in Denver a couple of weeks ago where we talked about comments on the 
NIST 800-171 drafts where, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're talking about things that are not material to the standard, then the comments will be viewed as not relevant, even if what you're commenting is true and valid and an otherwise perfectly good comment, like it's expensive and it costs money and therefore it's difficult for small businesses to deal with, not what NIST is trying to achieve with their drafts of 800-171. Same thing extends over to the CMMC rule. If you're, if you're commenting on things that are outside of the scope and substance of what the, what's in the rule, then DOD mm. will say that's not relevant and therefore they won't address it even if it's otherwise valid, which is very frustrating sort of gets into the pointing Spider-Man meme of federal agencies and who's in charge of what and so on and so forth. One example of that being marked or unmarked CUI is one of the things that probably plagues the industry more than anything else. And the CMMC program office that is shepherding the CMMC rule through the process is not in charge of the DOD's CUI program. That's an other, that's a different office inside the Undersecretary of Defense. It's uh, the INS office inside the Undersecretary of Defense. So when people have issues with CUI marking, even though it's a, a valid issue that causes problems with CMMC, the CMMC program office goes, we don't do that here. This is a Wendy's. You got to go down the street and talk to INS. But INS doesn't really come outside to play very much. So you don't really have anybody to talk to. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't submit those comments. Just, you know, maybe manage your expectations for, is this comment really material to the CMMC rule? That, so that's kind of why I brought that up and, and asked that question is because it kind of plays into that implementation trap that you were talking about. If you're an organization, you're sitting here, I, I want to wait for the comment period because I want to make a comment about FIPS validated encryption before I do anything, right? And, and I want to get that adjudicated and taken care of. Well, you're going to submit that comment. They're going to tell you, sorry, again, this is a Wendy's, right? And then you're going to think that you're going to wait a full year, delay your progress for a full year over something that's not in the purview. Now, if this is yeah. something to deal with, uh, I don't know, reciprocity from some some other standard or, uh, you know, international regulations or how this is going to be validated and finalized as, as far as the whole process through uh, the C3PAOs and the Cyber AB, those are the comments that you probably would want to wait for. Like, you still don't want yeah. to wait to do implementations. But yeah, just building on that implementation trap strategy going into the comment period. But do a lot of people comment, Jacob? Well, that's the that's the, one of the questions that I have about the comment period is, are people going to comment? Because, you know, historically, when you look back at the CMMC rule in 2020, it, I mean, it is far and away the most viewed rule in the history of DoD rulemaking, which as we've said in the past, DoD doesn't do a lot of rulemaking compared mm -hmm. to other federal agencies. And so the numbers that we're talking about here are much smaller than like, FCC rules, SEC rules, uh, you know, EPA, stuff like that, right? But within this context, the CMMC rule is a humongous outlier in terms of how many people viewed it, how many people read it, and how many people commented on it. It's not even close. Um, however, other recent rules around cybersecurity, both DOD and non-DOD, just don't get a lot of public attention. The DOD one that I always point to is the DIBCS program. This is the rule that proposed to expand access to DIBCS tools and services uh, for non-cleared defense contractors. Beforehand, for years and years, cleared defense contractors have had access to cybersecurity tools and services that the rest of the DIB has not. 
And so good idea on the DOD to expand access to those tools and services. Uh, even if they don't directly address a lot of the requirements in 171, they're, you know, they're still out there. So it's nice that they're trying to make them more available. However, I think there was like one comment, you know, a 60 day comment period, cybersecurity in the dib. Everybody's motivated to do cybersecurity, right? Everybody's paying attention to what the DOD is doing as far as making things available, right? I mean, that's what everybody comments whenever it comes to CMMC. They go, we need resources. We need help. We need resources. We need tools. You need to do this for us. What are you doing to help us? And then they release the proposed rule on the DIB-CS program and nobody read it. I mean, the page views were very low. There were no comments. Essentially, nobody even knew what happened, right? Part of this is uh, the fact that it isn't somebody showing up and checking your work, so it doesn't freak people out, and so it doesn't get the attention. It isn't something that you have to engage with in order to qualify for contracts, and so when push comes to shove, people just don't care about it as much as they might indicate otherwise in their comments on CMMC. So I'm very interested to see uh, will it will it keep up with their, you know, as the amount of interaction that it had in 2020. I think it will, but it's a huge disparity between we're going to show up and assess you. We're going to make things available. People care way more about people showing up and assessing them than they do about uh, actually engaging with tools and services. So I tend to agree with you uh, with this uh, because of the fact that we're, we're actually seeing it play out where there's more organizations that are taking meetings with OIRA, right? The EO meetings with, with OIRA. Um, it, that's a, a whole different topic for a whole different day. Um, but but th it's something that we didn't see normally before. I, I think that, like you said, that this is the most viewed role in, in history of DOD. Yeah. And it's the most discussed, most, I don't want to say controversial because it's going to put a negative light on it. I, but I it, is it is one of the, I mean, I think it is it, for it, sure. It, it's widely debated, right? Like there, there's yeah. a d differing sides. And we, even us, sometimes we have conversations about things within the rule. We don't agree on everything. No, absolutely not. You know, I mean, you, that's, that's part of the process. I think writ large, as you know, on, on the whole, right, you have to have an assurance mechanism, because we have years and years of objective evidence that unless you have an external verification mechanism, requirements don't get implemented, period, mm -hmm. end of story, right? It's like we said in the past. If DIBCAC went along and kept doing their assessments of DOD contractors while we were waiting on the CMMC rule, and we saw significant increases in the amount of implementation, the rates of implementation, <clears throat> then mm -hmm. the justification for needing an external verification program is a lot lower because just having these spot checks from DIBCAC is sufficient. That has proven to be not true at all. And I don't think it takes all of viewers of the show, people who have interacted in the DIB, Everybody's got plenty of stories where there's plenty of companies out there, not all, but there are plenty of companies out there who will straight up say, until the rule comes out, we're not doing anything. And that is sometimes a misconception. Sometimes it's a purposeful decision. There's a lot of different reasons why that happens. But at this point, there's basically no way for you to move the needle on implementation unless you make the needle move. We're sort of watching, this is a topic for probably a different episode, but we're watching this play out in the water sector with EPA, right? Uh, same sort of situation, under-resourced, small organizations can't keep up with cybersecurity, tons and tons of reports coming out about the sector. It's critical. It's drinking water. I mean, <laughs> this is pretty, pretty critical. And they're not implementing basic requirements. 
blah, 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 on and on and on. EPA comes out with a thing where they try to force this standard on them. Everybody freaks out, right? And so it's like the same thing. And we've talked about this before. It's the same thing in all the critical infrastructure sectors, not just in the dib. As a result, right, I think that there's going to be there's going to be a lot of comments. So you think that there's going to be a lot of comments and you talked about misconceptions. And one of the misconceptions that I had was, and you obviously educated me, this leads to our third point. Is there just one place for you to make comments on this rule? Yeah, so this is actually pretty interesting. And this is actually kind of a recent development. So if you notice the thumbnail for this week, you'll see like all this, all these weird line items behind us. So um, normally when a rule gets published in the Federal Register, you have a single rule and you can submit a comment on that singular rule. However, this rule is real big, like big, big. And there's a bunch of different pieces to the rule. And so what appears to be happening is OMB has created nine different entries. So people will be able to comment on them individually is what it looks like they're doing based off of their current entry on the OMB dashboard. So there is the text of the CMMC program rule itself, the preamble, the analyses, the Paperwork Reduction Act analysis, the regulatory flexibility analysis, all that red tape stuff is going to be one spot where you can leave comments. And these will probably all be linked on the on the on the spot in the Federal Register. We have to see how they do this. Um, there is going to be a spot for the model overview document. Uh, there's going to be a spot to leave comments on each of the assessment guides, level one, two, and three, as well as each of the scoping guides, level one, two, and three, as well as being able to leave comments on the CMMC hashing guide, which is the process for how they're going to hash the evidence that they collect and then upload it into the ether, wherever it's going to go. Uh, once we finally see the contents of the official hashing guide. Now this is, this is overall a good thing, I think, because if you imagine you've got all of these different documents that are all relatively lengthy, you've got the text of the rule, right? You're going to have the lawyers looking at it. You're going to have the DIB looking at it. You're going to have the security ecosystem looking at it. You're going to have the mm -hmm. C3P. You're going to have all these different perspectives all converging on this one rule. They had almost a thousand comments on the 2020 rule. The ecosystem is a lot more aware and uh, and informed about, I think, the details of how things play Ass out. So Assembled. We could, we could call them assembled with pitchforks and, and torches, whatever yeah, you want to say. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Avengers, pitchforks, you know, pick, pick your metaphor depending on which side you're on. Um, but so I think that splitting these comments into these different documents pertaining to the rule and the CMC model itself is probably a good thing because it'll make the adjudication process a lot more efficient, Absolutely. a lot more in big quotes here. Uh, it should make it more efficient. Not that it's all that efficient of a process to begin with, but if you're able to take a gigantic pile of public comments and then divide it into slightly smaller piles of public comments, it should make that adjudication process go quicker, which I think is probably a good thing. How that is linked in the Federal Register, we'll have to see, but there should be a spot to comment on the individual pieces of the CMMC documentation rather than having to scroll through 250 pages and being like, yeah, on, on line 506,497, there's a conjunction that needs to be changed to be like, all right, like <laughs> you can put that in this bucket over here so that it's not just a, a huge crowd of, of comments. Okay, so fourth thing to know here, the big one that we always talk about is there is a difference between the CMMC program and the requirements in 800 
DFARS 7012, the contract clause, says companies need to implement 80171 if they're dealing with CUI. The CMMC program says if you are implementing 80171 pursuant to DFARS 7012, you need to get an assessment to verify that you've implemented those requirements. Pretty straightforward. Uh, however, as we saw with the 2020 rule, as we've seen with most conversations around CMMC since the 2020 rule, and as I'm sure we will see in the comments on the 2023 rule, people conflate the 800-171 requirements with the CMMC program that assesses those requirements. Mm -hmm. So uh, very, very important to understand, mostly so that you just don't waste your time, right? If you are commenting on cost, burden, impact, complexity, issues with the 800-171 requirements, and you submit that on the public comment period on the CMMC program rule, DOD is going to respond to you and say it's not relevant to the substance of this rule. You should have submitted that comment back in 2016 whenever we revised DFARS 7012. This is a Wendy's. If you do have specific issues with 800-171, NIST is currently revising the CUI series, something that we talked about in depth at Summit Up Live, CS2 Denver. We're currently waiting on the next revisions of 800-171 and 800-171A, the drafts to come out also around this time, end of October, November, Q4 timeframe. So there's going to be a lot of stuff happening that is heavily related and heavily sort of you know, interdependent, but different things, like different, uh, you know, uh, buckets that your comments need to go in based off of who is wearing which hat, right? Comments on the CMMC assessment program, CMMC rule, comments on 800-171 requirements on the NIST drafts, two different spots. So when the NIST draft releases, Jacob, and then now for CMMC, we're validating DFARS implementations. What is something that could happen that would change DFARS to reflect revision three? Uh, well, so this is this is one of the things that I'm sort of looking for in the rule, right? Because, um, okay, so first of all, one thing to understand based off of my conversations with everyone who's ever interacted with OIRA, they can be an obstinate bunch, right? This, this, this is from, convert I've never met people in OIRA. I'm sure they're very nice people. I'm just saying based off of my conversations with other government bureaucrats, people mm -hmm. who have spent a career in public service as a bureaucrat have all sort of said that their interactions with OIRA, like take it to a whole new level of, of uh, in the weeds-ness, if you will, uh, which is great. They have a very important job. They need to stick to the details and make sure that everything's on the up and up. However, that can be difficult to get things done. So, you know, the language in DFAR 7012 says you're supposed to implement the version of 800-171 that is current at the time of your contract award. So if 800-171 gets revised, guess what? You're implementing the new revision. We're right. waiting to see if DUD is going to issue a class deviation, which essentially says you have some amount of time to catch up with the delta in the revision. But again, that's a DFAR 7012 thing. CMMC is there to verify your implementation of 800-171. So what language will OIRA approve going into the rule? Will they say point to DFAR 7012, which points to the floating revision as a variable? 
Will they hard code a specific version of 800-171 and cause a huge mess and then force everybody to submit a bunch of public comments to get them to change it? We don't know. That's part of the fun of <laughs> what's going to happen with rulemaking, right? We just have to wait and see uh, what they're going to say. But it is one of those things that's important to understand the relationship. The program assesses and verifies. You've got a DFARS contract clause that's been in existence for a long time pointing to a set of requirements, but it points to a, a floating set of requirements. This is mm -hmm. very different from you know people who deal with RMF, uh, the risk management framework, federal contracts dealing with 853 and uh, ATO packages and things like that. For those companies, they almost always have a specific version of 853 in their contract. And then if 853 gets revised, there has to be a contract mod for them to make the jump to the next version of 853. There's a lot of people out there who've made careers about sort of shepherding big projects from 853 Rev3 to Rev4 and now to Rev5. We have the opposite situation in the DIB DFARS world where you don't get a hard-coded version of 800-171 in DFARS 7012. You just get whatever the newest revision is, which... Uh, is pretty crazy that Ohio would have approved that language back in 2016. So we'll just have to wait and see <clears throat> how they handle it coming up. Yeah, I think when it goes between CMMC and 171, the other thing that makes what is said in the rule really important is the fact that even though DFARS is being updated and the rules being updated, there's still a whole ecosystem and program behind it in CMMC that has to get updated and be brought into the modern part, right? And so like that, however that's dictated is going to increase the sense of urgency in the, in the Keiko and the cyber AB to make sure that they, you know, bring it up to speed. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So uh, moving on to number five here, <clears throat> one of the things that we've heard many, many times in the, in the development of the rule is there will still be a phased rollout. We still see this problem all the time where people sort of pull up the text of the CMMC clause, DFAR 7021, that was created with the 2020 rule. And the 2020 rule had a phased rollout. It was a seven-year mm -hmm. phased rollout that was supposed to have CMMC, DFAR 7021, in all contracts by October of 2025. So people pull up the text of the rule and they go, oh, we're waiting on the CMMC rule. It's October of 2023. Uh, this says October of 2025, therefore that's how long it will mm -hmm. take for DOD to put all of the clauses in all of the contracts. No, like the Michael Jordan gif, stop it, get some help. That's not what that means, right? The pause of the CMMC rollout program, starting with their review of CMMC in 2021, uh, is basically, basically means that the text of DFAR 7021 is frozen in time. That October 2025 rollout date is is an artifact from when the rule was published in 2020. Anyways, DOD has said multiple times there will still be a phased rollout. Obviously, they're not just going to sort of show up with the final rule and go, ha ha, it's in all contracts. As much as they would probably like to do that, uh, there's a lot of reasons why they're not going to do that and can't do that. So they're going to phase it into contracts. And they've said three years, multiple, multiple times. So uh, because we're dealing with a smaller set of companies that need CMMC assessments uh, at level two and level three and so on and so forth compared to CMMC 1.0, uh, the phased rollout doesn't need to be five to seven years long. It could be three to five years long, right? So uh, there will still be a phased rollout. 
should be about three years. October of 2025 is less than three years from the time we're expecting the published rule to come out. So tell your friends, tell your trick-or-treaters, October 2025 is not the date. It's not the date. You got to zoom out and remember that the rule was published in 2020 and then it was put on pause. It's this crazy life cycle that we're in. It's like every two or three months, somebody pulls up to Plymouth Rock and they're like, hey, look what I found, right? Like, yeah, and it's, like, uh, no. which, you know, I'm glad people are searching around more, right? Because circa 2019, 2020, people were just getting blindsided by this news. Right. So it's great to see that people are looking around, but like we've talked about Lauren Ayers in the past. When you Google this stuff and you pull up the clauses, there's no disclaimer on the on DFAR 7012 on the DOD website that says, oh, this is an artifact of 2020 rulemaking, blah, blah, blah. Like you really have mm -hmm. to kind of know what's going on. If you just sort of casually stumble across this stuff, you can you can lead yourself to some conclusions that are like, whoa, this is a this is a crazy timeline right now. So still going to be a three year phase rollout. October 2025 is the date that needs to be updated, probably with this coming rule that's going to be updating a lot of the stuff that we saw from 2020. Okay, so point number six, uh, this has been something that I've seen people chirping about on LinkedIn quite a bit, and I'm sort of confused <laughs> why it keeps coming up. People on LinkedIn are, uh, these are a lot of people, a lot of CMMC flat earthers, a lot of people who don't like CMMC for whatever reason. They're going, well, there's no legal justification for CMMC. Um, but hey, you know, um, everybody's everybody's got every argument should be evaluated, right? So the legal justification for any rule is listed on the rulemaking entry that you can find on the OMB website. And, you know, just to get back to that point about how legalistic and uh, bureaucratic OMB and OIRA are, uh, I don't know why people would imagine that a rule would get all the way through this review process and then out for public comment if it was completely unjustified with like no trace of legal justification whatsoever, right? Like, what do you think they've been doing for two or three years now? Anyways, if you go to that page on the OMB website, you'll find that there are two citations, two hyperlinks on literally next to the part of the rule entry that says legal justification colon, and then these two things. The first one is five US code section 301. Uh, and that is the part of the US code that gives federal agencies discretion, right? Basically says you have discretion over what you're going to do, right? You have delegated mm -hmm. authorities. You've got a bunch of legal discretion. You have a bunch of legal authorities. It's like the catch-all that says agencies have the ability to do a rulemaking in general, right? They have the ability mm -hmm. to, they have the ability to be a federal agency codified in the U.S. code. The next one, the more specific one to CMMC, the only other one, is Public Law 116-92, Section 1648. People will probably know this better by its other name, the FY20 NDAA. The FY20 NDAA, Section 1648, was put in there by the Armed Services Committees of the House and the Senate, and they said that the DOD needs to create a program to hold contractors accountable for not implementing their cybersecurity contractual requirements. End of story, right? You go back to this time frame. This happened with the compromise of the Sea Dragon program, the F-35 program, multiple satellite programs, on and on and on. The DOD IG report that evaluated contractor implementation of cybersecurity requirements, as well as 
the DOD's contract workforce ability to actually look at and insert and and deal with these contract requirements. It wasn't just beating up on contractors. They took all that information, they sort of wrote their own comment, and then they inserted this language into section 1648 of the FY NDAA, uh, the FY20 NDAA, which is why in the end of 2020, like about a year later, we got the rule that points to that provision in the NDA legislation that says, here's our framework, here's our program mm -hmm. for holding contractors accountable. This is what you asked for, Congress. So if you see people talking about CMMC is not legally justified, that's not true. If you see people talking about how Congress will certainly have issues with CMMC, this is not the DOD going rogue here. This is not the DOD just deciding to do something out of the blue. Uh, like with a lot of rulemaking, the cybersecurity rulemaking in DOD all the way back to 2013 only happens after something bad happens, right? Regulation is mm -hmm. very reactive. And most rulemaking, CMMC and DOD cybersecurity requirements included in this typically uh, happen after Congress tells them to go do something once it gets to the point where Congress has taken issue. So like we talk about all the time, you got to zoom the camera way out in order to see the whole story of CMMC. So you see people talking about legal justification, you see people talking about, you know, congressional action, be skeptical. And you can go to the OMB site, click the hyperlinks, you can read the text of the legislation yourself that led to CMMC rulemaking. Uh, it's, it's right there for everybody to see. I'll be the first to admit when you start jumping into the legal justifications and talking all that mumbo jumbo of U.S. codes and stuff like that, I, I just tune out, like not, not tune out, like I'm not listening to you, but I'm like, I have to pay attention to every word that you say, because it's, it's really important to see where all this links up and where the justification comes from. Yeah. And, I, and listen, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, right? I'm not a lawyer. Right. I think it's very, I think it's very interesting uh, mm -hmm. how it all works, but you know, this is stuff that, you know, I learned about sort of along the way, just like everybody else. And so uh, you know, are there legal arguments? Is there legal theory at play? Sure. Uh, does somebody on LinkedIn being like, it's not legally justified. It's dead in the water. Don't worry about implementing 800-171. Probably don't listen to that person. Probably just, you know, be skeptical, do your own research and, uh, you can find the hyperlinks. It's very convenient. So we'll link to them. Everybody can read them. If you have more questions or other thoughts, or if we have it wrong, tell us in the comments. And that leads us to our last one, Jacob. The yeah, last so thing also... to remember. This is also an interesting legal issue, if you will, right. uh, in the sense that it's not it's not a cybersecurity requirement. It's not a it's not a technical engineering issue, but it's very relevant to the CNMC conversation. So this has to do with contract privity, contract privity. So contract law in the United States is like the bedrock of how business in the United States works, right? Contracts is a huge part of what you learn in law school. A lot of lawyers deal with contracts. Everybody, know, anybody who's enlisted in the United States military knows you better read your contract because there's a whole bunch of good stuff in there that uh, you, you need to read closely. So uh, I wasn't even supposed to be in the cybersecurity field. Story for a different day, right? Read your contracts, kids. Anyways, um, what what's happening here is the DOD has privity of contract with the people that they are on prime contracts with. And there's a mm -hmm. whole world of subcontractors and sub, 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 subcontractors and on and on and on below that initial agreement. Right now, I'm I'm really glossing over the legal details here. Like I said, I'm not a lawyer. Talk talk to your lawyers. But essentially, the long and short of it is 
the prime contractors, when they enter an agreement with their subcontractors, are entering an agreement with their subcontractors, right? The DOD is not entering an agreement with those subcontractors. The primes are. And generally, when I talk about the primes here, I'm, I'm really talking about the mega primes, but it counts for anybody. So two private businesses entering into a contract agreement can negotiate that contract to their heart's content. Now, there are requirements that need to flow down into that proceeding because DOD data is involved or whatever, mm -hmm. right? So there are requirements that flow from the DOD through the prime into the supply chain, but they are not on direct contract with the people in the supply chain. They don't have privity of contract is what the, the legal term would be here. <clears throat> the reason why this matters is if you look at DFAR 7012, if you look at the very last paragraph, paragraph M, there is language in there that says you need to flow this clause down to your subcontractors when they're dealing with CUI. However, there's also language in that paragraph that says uh, the contractor gets to decide whether data retains its identity as covered, uh, controlled unclassified information, covered defense information, so on and so forth. So the primes have this mechanism of choice and discretion where they get to decide. Does it retain its identity? Yes or no. And as we've seen, most primes are not willing to make the decision to say it doesn't retain its identity as CUI. They're not willing to take the liberty of this option that they've been given mm -hmm. in their contract with the DOD to say, no, 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 uh, this data doesn't really qualify. You don't need this clause. Since you don't need this clause, you don't need to implement 800-171. Since you don't need to implement 800-171, you don't you don't need CMMC. That is not the phenomenon that we see play out in the supply chain. We see the exact opposite, where the people who are in contract with the DOD get this huge set of requirements, DFAR 712, among many, many others, and then they just automatically flow it down into the supply chain. They just shotgun it out. And then the burden that is then placed on people who really don't have the resources or the knowledge or the teams or whatever to negotiate those clauses out of their contracts. Even if they have those teams, they're not really in a negotiating position when you're talking about negotiating with Lockheed or like negotiating with Northrop, right? Even if you're a relatively large company in the DIB, you're probably not sort of telling them what to do very often. There's a whole bunch of cultural issues that go into this where suppliers don't want to push back on their purchasers. They don't want to push back on their contract officers and their representatives. They don't want to rock the boat. They want to be easy to do business with. And so they just accept these flowdowns, accept these flowdowns, so on and so forth. Years go by, all of a sudden the DOD has this assessment program and the primes go, well, you've had this, this clause language all along. So you're looped into this issue and then it becomes a huge mess. So something to keep in mind, right, is Everyone is turning around and yelling at the DOD for these unreasonable burdens, these unreasonably complex requirements, the costs, the impact on small business. You have to remember that DFAR 712 and basically all these clauses are at the discretion of the primes to determine whether or not it needs to keep going. And the primes of their own volition almost always decide to mitigate their own risk and then flow that those clauses and those requirements down into the supply chain and they're more than happy to then have their suppliers and their subcontractors go yell at the DOD. And the DOD goes, why are you yelling at us? You're, you're not on contract with us. You're on contract with your prime. You, you signed the contract with them. You guys need to negotiate what the thing is. And so this gets back to our earlier point about the phased rollout. 
like we've talked about before, DOD's idea is we are going to insert DFAR 7021 CMMC certification requirements into a set of contracts at a time over the course of multiple years. We're not going to be burdening industry by dumping these requirements in every contract overnight, even if that was possible to do. However, as we've already seen, that does not keep the Raytheons and the Lockheeds and the Northrops of the world from turning around and going, go get CMMC right now, right? It, the problem is DOD is saying, we're not requiring everybody to get it right now. And then the primes will say, go get it right now because you're working for me. You're not working for them. And then everybody turns around at DOD and goes, why is this going so fast? And DOD goes, well, we're not on contract with it. And then around and around we go. The purity of contract issue is a huge problem. So, you know, the advice here is just sort of know where you are in the eco, the tiers of the ecosystem, because just like yelling at DOD about NIST requirements isn't always the best place to put your public comments, taking issue with the DOD over how quickly your customers are requiring CMMC certification may not be the DOD's fault, um, is the way I would say it. Nobody's in a rush to be the the poster child for the the company that didn't properly mark the CUI as they floated down to a secondary um, supply. Absolutely, right? yeah. and, and so proactively, what's happening is is that these prime contractors are seeing that the DoD's effort to manage their risk in association with CUI is to create the CUI program, right, and, and to have these requirements for the primes. The primes then now have to proactively, before they get that contract, make sure that their house is in order, right? And that phase rollout time, what we're seeing is, is a increased steady flow down of how are you doing this? Give me an update of how you're doing this. Let me see your right. SSP and your POEM. Let me see what's going on. Let me send in this independent advisor to, to come in and check to, to verify your status. I, I've seen every bit of that in, yeah. in the consulting world and in <clears throat> discussing with people. All right. So... That's basically seven very high level things that people should be aware of uh, before the CMMC rule comes out. Uh, the CMMC rule is nigh at this point, should be a matter of weeks away as of this conversation. Uh, I guess any last minute bonuses or tips or uh, runners up for our, our list of our convenient list of seven things. Yeah. So uh, I think my favorite time at Halloween is when we get the full-size candy bars. Those are the best houses, right? So let's, let's turn this episode into a full-size candy bar and add one extra bonus thing that I think irritates both of us, right? Okay. And that's in this time where things are starting to heat up, in this time where rulemaking is going final, in this period where now actually traction's happening and movement's starting to, to take place, you have to beware of the BS. You have to beware. You, just like you got to check every piece of candy when you get it home to make sure nobody's doctored it or, or, or done anything to it. Check every piece of candy that, that you're looking at when you're trying to satisfy your yep, craving. For sure. Uh, Man, that's a, that's a great metaphor. We're going to have to write that one down. And so, yeah, like, because the, you are not going to get compliant in three days. You are not going to, if it sounds too good to be true, it is probably too good to be true. And due diligence is going to be your best friend over the next two years, always, yeah. but especially now as an organization that, that has to meet CMMC. Yeah. I mean, just this morning when we were in the green room, you know, prior to this, there was a graphic that got posted by a company that is outwardly looks very authoritative on the ecosystem and what's going on. And their version of the CMMC model graphic with all the call outs of like where the requirements are coming from and how many of them and all those things completely wrong. I mean, it's, yes. it's not, it's not even close to right. It's completely wrong. 
But if they really just, took the implement the 171 to heart. They didn't I even just that. copy the, the DoD's version of the graphic. They changed it, and it's just straight up wrong. And so it's, it's, it's pretty just, bad. It's 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 an unfortunate situation because it's like you're relying on organizations and service providers and cybersecurity solution providers in a very asymmetric amount of information. You just you really have to be careful and do your research and your due diligence about you know what these people are claiming and. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And just like you said, in the lead up to this rule, after the rule is published, in the lead up, the next 12 months from the time the rule is published until the time the rule goes final, there's just gonna, it's gonna be very, very difficult to sift through all these random claims from random pop-up companies that are suddenly experts on what the requirements are, even though their graphics are wrong. So, And it's probably gonna be the most beneficial or crucial decision that your organization makes realistically. Oh yeah, small companies can probably only make that mistake once, right? I mean, that's mm -hmm. it, that's not a- No, the, it definitely is go for broke yeah. type deal, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like uh, uh, that Alex Honnold documentary where he's like climbing all the rocks without the ropes and stuff. Yeah, the, with the metaphor that they, the producers of, of the movie, uh, was Free Solo was the name of the movie. And they basically <laughs> talked about, you know, the the difficulty of what this guy was doing they're like you basically have to have an olympic gold medal performance and if you get a silver medal then you die because you fall yeah. off the rock wall right here like you basically have to make the correct decision the first time because if you make the wrong decision and you go with one of these fly by night get compliant in two weeks no big deal two grand and then you're good to go uh you know you're you're probably not going to reach the top of the wall here so you just really well, got to be part about it is, is you you are probably going to be in it for a while before you find out that it's terrible and then yeah. it's even yeah it, it yeah due diligence so, please let us know let us know in the comments maybe we could do a seven things to know about you know how to vet some of the claims that are out there if you guys are interested in an episode like that we read all the comments we're getting close to 4000 subscribers on the channel so leave a review on apple podcast leave a review on spotify leave comments on youtube leave comments on linkedin if you want us to talk about other things, if you want us to dive into different topics, if we got anything wrong, let us know, and then we'll work it into the show. Awesome. See you next week. See you guys. <laughs>